Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Dr. Joe Dispenza. Joe Dispenza, he's a doctor. He's got a BA in all of science. All science, that is, he's covered. Um, actually, he was fantastic. And when he talked about consciousness and the way we form our consciousness through our own conduct and behaviour, I was bang into it. Did you like it, Jen? Yeah, it made you feel empowered. Did you change any of your behaviours as a result? I feel like there's been no time. No. December is intense, isn't so it? So intense. Every year. Intense, but... Is it every year? Every year. I, I hate winter. Ooh. Because it's just like you're rushing to the end and then... Yeah. What about like, you know, winter's coming in Game of Thrones and all those guys... But there's no all... time to get all like... What about those guys up in them fur coats in Game of Thrones, them guys? What about... Jon Snow. Oh, yeah. I, I like him. So do I. So there you go. <laughs> you're friends with them. I love him. Yeah. What about all those guys out there? Walk, they're fully, fluffy but they're coats. scared of it, aren't they? They're like, they say it ominously. They don't go, winter's coming. You're right. They're not like Chris themselves, are they? No. It's ominous. It's, you're right. Yeah. Winter is coming. Like, mm. get your shit together, dog. Yeah. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. <sighs> Winter is coming. Well, it's, out, it's over now. Well, no, we're still in it. We're in it. We're in it. We're in the midst of it. Okay, so uh, <laughs> listen to shout-out-outs. Listen to shout-outs. Becky Barabich says, Under the Skin is the highlight of my week. Every Saturday night, I say to Ron, who I'm married at, do you know what day it is? It's Saturday. Hey, Becky, we love you. Thank you for doing this. What does it mean? Eh? Hey, he knows. He knows. He's a fan too. Oh, I love the tone of this. The problem is we fall asleep every... (laughs) This is an insult. It's an insult. Every single time. We always get the intro with Jen. That's the worst bit. So at least we get an overview of the week before. And we've tried to listen to the rest in bits over the following few days but sleep usually wins look we're not a drug are we we're not tramadol we're not gabapentin we're not some sort of soporific opioid smashing you at us are we for her yeah we are yeah we actually are that yeah. uh i just want to say thanks for helping us get the rest we need and i'm sure we're absorbing the knowledge on a subconscious level are you no you're not keep sentient <laughs> get, the get it in your mainframe wake up right let's do this now just in case becky Run! Sit up straight. Don't you dare doze off. Who's coming? Joe Dispenza. Once yeah. he's on, you'll be out like a light. Because especially at the beginning, he's well relaxed, isn't he? Yeah, but he's not boring. So that's good. <laughs> Great producing, Jen. Great producing. <laughs> Julian Harrison says, Thank you for all them podcasts under the skin. <laughs> Julian, I like the way you talk, bruv. Showing what's really going on in the background. And you add real humour as well. Please keep it going. You are a true shining star. You have many followers and people are starting to awaken through your podcast. Keep up the fab work. I love Julian. Great. Didn't mention Jen. Exactly what I like <laughs> from, a, from a compliment. Should we listen to Joe Dispenza now? Yes. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Dr. Joe Dispenza, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. I'm happy to be with you, Russell. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, there are loads of areas of your expertise in which I'm most interested, uh, n- notably uh, neuroplasticity, a little bit epigenetics from as much as I understand it. And I, I wonder, if I may ask you a very broad question just to get us started, um, what areas of your personal expertise do you feel um, most relevant to you 
at the moment, given that this feels like a particularly fractured and fragmented time, whether it's in the context of the cultural war, the various um, fissures that are emerging around particularly legislation around the pandemic, I wonder what you find yourself contemplating lately. Ah, well, um, you know, I do my best, Russell, to, to be the living example of everything that I teach. And um, I think this is a time in history where it's not enough to know. I think it's a time in history to know how. And there's so much change happening uh, right now currently in the world that we have every reason to allow our response from the environment, uh, some conditions, some circumstance, to cause us to emotionally react and, and think in certain ways. And I think that uh, anything that controls our thoughts and feelings, uh, we're victim to. We are we, we have lost a certain degree of conscious will or conscious control. So for me, um, it's an important time to, to really practice and to learn how to self-regulate. And, and I think the key is to be able to teach people how to realize that they have within their reach all the neurological and biological machinery to begin to really produce effects in their lives. So then going from the victim of our circumstances to the creator of uh, our life uh, tends to reverse the process. And I think when we see those coincidences and opportunities and, and synchronicities that begin to appear in our outer world, I think we start to believe that more that we are the creator instead of the victim. So for me personally, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing time because it's we, we start to realize that no government, that no uh, religion that no healthcare plan uh, is going to take care of us. That uh, we have to learn first of all how to self-regulate and control our inner world of thoughts and feelings, and at the same time find a community of individuals that are a collective network uh, that are not fractured by fear or by anger or by pain or hostility or prejudice or whatever it is that drives us into separation as a community because. Living in survival is living in stress. And, and when we respond to the environment over time, it actually weakens the organism. We get weaker. The environment is, is, is our response is causing us to, to fall to a lower level of consciousness. So what we discovered in our work is that collective networks of individuals that can self-regulate and open their hearts uh, when it goes against the thousands of years of conditioning and, and programming. Uh, that the collective network of individuals, a, a community uh, uh, with a new consciousness, I think uh, is what is the future. And so for me personally, uh, I'm interested in, in, in investigating that. I'm, I'm interested in seeing if we have within our reach uh, those particular resources within us. And our research has proven without a doubt that if you learn how to change uh, your inner world, uh, uh, independent of what's going on in your outer world, the body tends to flourish. Uh, uh, diseases tend to reverse. Uh, uh, people are no longer uh, living uh, uh, with the same limited degree of possibilities. They're aware that there's other possibilities. And the side effect of that process has been spontaneous remissions from diseases and 
you know, opportunities that begin to appear in people's lives. And we've spent the last couple of years measuring those effects. And, and, and I can tell you, I'm, I'm so, so encouraged that we have universities and, and academic institutions looking at those, those effects. And I can tell you that we are greater than we think, uh, uh, more powerful than we, we know and more unlimited than we could ever dream. And gosh, uh, the science is actually pointing to that uh, in, in, in our investigations. Thank you. There are loads of things I want to pick up on. On a, like a, a smaller scale, can you give uh, me a, an example of how uh, disposition is more important than position, how your attitude can affect your reality? Because that's the kind of thing I experience on a daily basis where I, I know that I'm being tortured by sort of circuits of thought. My background is um, and my kind of rubric for, you know, if not survival, then, I don't know, sustenance or being is like a 12-step predicated model which i find to be most robust and able to incorporate many different disciplines and ideas of a very multivalent philosophy nonetheless let me and many other people in recovery i spend time with often are tormented by what are referred to in the parlance of our program as defects of character sort of self-centered obsession fear anxiety I just wonder if you could give a micro example and then like uh, I guess you alluded to uh, a larger example like a, a powerful pathological I impact the, the sort of spontaneous sort of healing from diseases and, and and for that the second part of that question I'd like you Joe please to address the kind of skepticism that I'm sure that outside of a sort of a friendly group of the community that you've alluded to, the kind of skepticism that meets with and a, a little more, if you don't mind, on the evidence uh, around uh, those uh, academic studies as well, because, um, you know, for me, that's. You know, when I hear something like your, I recognise that immunity and all and biochemical activity must have a conscious component, even if it isn't easily accessed by the individual. But the idea that we can be in that part of ourselves, of course, I talk to people, you, you, you know, like um, you know Bruce Lipton or Wim Hof, who like you know, or, or even Tony Robbins, you know, people that sort of come from that place you know the power of the individual the autonomy so you know, a small example big example and then some of the academic stuff okay well uh, uh thanks for the thoughtful questions um i think most people um you know I, I think science is the contemporary language of mysticism i think it's science that demystifies the mystical and if you can combine some theories in quantum physics and neuroscience and neuroplasticity and neuroendocrinology and psychoneuroimmunology, the mind-body connection and uh, epigenetics. Uh, I think all of those sciences point the finger at possibility. So when we become aware that there's uh, possibilities that were, we were once unaware of, we have to change our consciousness because consciousness is awareness. So most people, they, they, they start off, they wake up in the morning and, and your brain is a record of the past. And so the moment the person wakes up and they start remembering their problems, those problems are memories that are etched in the brain that are connected to certain people, certain situations, certain conditions at certain times and places. And the moment that they remember their problems, they're thinking in the past, because in fact, the brain is a record, a, a repository of everything that we know in our lives. 
Every one of those problems, though, is an experience, and experiences produce emotions. So the moment the person feels unhappy, the moment the person feels insecure, the moment the person feels fear, now their body's in the past because thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how we think and how we feel really creates our state of being. So now, how, how do those emotions become the memory of who we are, how we feel every day? Well, the stronger the emotion you feel from some experience in your life, the more altered you feel inside of you from some event outside of you, that change in your chemical state causes you to narrow your focus on the cause and the brain freezes a frame and takes a snapshot and that's called a long-term memory. So trauma then not only exists in the brain, but it also exists in the body. And so then the person recalls the event and they're producing the same chemistry as if the event was actually happening. So the person begins to condition the body emotionally into the past because it is the thought and the feeling. It's the, it's the image, the, the memory and the emotion. It's the stimulus and the response that's conditioning the body emotionally to become the mind of that experience, it becomes a subconscious state of being. So then the person wakes up every day and they search for that familiar feeling that is what we call the familiar past or the known. And those emotions tend to influence our thoughts. And then we keep thinking the same thoughts and we fire and wire the same circuits in the brain. And then we produce the same chemicals so that we begin to feel more of the same feelings. So when you feel insecure, you're going to think uh, more insecure thoughts and you are going to feel like a failure or feel like you're, you're, you're out of balance. Well, that redundancy of that cycle over time becomes the person's familiar state of being. And the body is so objective that it doesn't know the difference between the real life experience that's creating that feeling, that emotion, and the emotion that person is fabricating by thought alone. So how you think and how you feel becomes an attitude. And so people begin to memorize these states of being. So then, then they go through a set of routine behaviors. They wake up every morning and they do the exact same things as they did the day before. And a habit is a redundant set of automatic uh, unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that's acquired through repetition. You keep doing something enough times, your body starts to know how to do it better than your conscious mind. And now the body's on autopilot, it's on a program. And what it's doing is it's dragging us into a predictable future based on what we did in the past. And we lose our free will to a set of programs. So now in the, in the example of someone in our life, whoever it could be, it could be anybody, including yourself, the person who has the traumatic event or the person who has a difficulty from the past, what their brain is always doing is it's sweeping the environment to predict if that's ever going to happen again, because they, they have to move into that state of protection or that state of survival. So living in stress is living in survival. And when stress is activated in the system, the brain and body move out of, out of order. Uh, we're, we're tapping the body's resources and immobilizing enormous amounts of energy for some threat in the outer world. Nothing wrong with that for the short term because thousands of years of adaptation caused us to do that really well. Now, here's the problem. <clears throat> when you turn on that stress response, uh, from some person, some circumstance, some any condition in your outer world, and you're living in stress and you're living in survival, no organism in nature 
can tolerate living in that state for an extended period of time. If you're mobilizing all that energy for some threat in your outer world, you have no, no energy in your inner world for growth and repair. And so the person then can start reacting to circumstances in their life and the arousal and the change in awareness from the stress hormones uh, becomes like uh, uh, a drug. It be, we, we, we search for the problems and conditions in our life to get the arousal so that we can wake up and pay attention. And people over time become addicted to certain emotional states that, that literally that, that, that keep them feeling the same way. So the long-term effects of the hormones of stress uh, push the genetic buttons and create disease. And so then if we can turn on the stress response just by thought alone, thinking about our problems and those chemicals uh, downregulate genes and create disease, that means our thoughts can literally make us sick. So if our thoughts could make us sick, the fundamental question is, is our thoughts could make us well. So my research team and I just decided to just do a simple experiment, have a person trade fear and anger and aggression and unhappiness and train them uh, to start to feel elevated emotions, emotions that bring them joy, emotions that are pro-social, that cause them to feel grateful for life, a, uh, a, 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 true, a true joy for existence and, and learn how to self-regulate those emotional states. Um, would it begin to cause the immune system to upregulate? And we found in a very short amount of time, four days, uh, that the body was producing an immunoglobulin, immunoglobulin A that is the primary defense against viruses and bacteria. It's, it's the body's natural flu shot. So when the body moves out of survival and a person's living in a new emotional state, the body's so objective then when it's living in the emotions of that state and a person can sustain that state, it begins to believe it's living in a new environment because it doesn't know the difference. Now, it's the environment that signals the gene and the end product of an experience in our environment is an emotion. So in, that, in, a, in a certain way, the person's actually regulating or signaling genes ahead of the environment and genes make proteins. And so the person's body begins to change. And the side effect of that, what we've discovered, has been in testimony. When you see someone stand on a stage in front of 1500 people and say, I was diagnosed with a uterine sarcoma and I'm a cancer researcher <laughs> and I've done everything I could with all the chemotherapies and all the treatments and nothing changed until I changed and nothing changes in our life until, until we change. And that person's now speaking truth. <laughs> that person's a four minute mile for an audience that, that there's no longer any metastatic cancer in her bones or in her lungs or in her liver. Uh, this is this is someone taking information and applying it and taking their power back and they don't need a drug or something outside of them to change their internal state. They learned the process on how to do that. So the testimony that we've seen uh, as a side effect of a person changing the way they think, the way they act and the way they feel. <clears throat> in a very short amount of time, we see a change in a regulation in a person's biology. So then, then the idea then that when people become addicted to the circumstances in their life that make them feel those emotions, uh, in a sense, they, they become addicted to the life they don't even like. And this is uh, why change is so hard, because in survival, people cling to the known, to the familiar. 
And they'd rather feel unhappy than take a chance in possibility. Give people the proper information and give them numerous opportunities to practice it and break it down into a formula and allow them to understand the what and the why. And if they can, the how gets easier. So we've seen enormous amounts of spontaneous remissions uh, in, in our work. And that's what led us to, to the science. Now, I'll talk about the science uh, for a few minutes here because it's so compelling and it's so outside of what we ever expected uh, that we're publishing papers on it. So, so we, when we run our events, we, it's a perfect laboratory because you have a thousand or 1500 people that come together and they're waking up at the same time and they're doing the same things. And for the most part, they're eating the same foods and it's a, it's a closed environment. And, and so we measure people's brains. We measure their brains many, studies, we measure their brains before they start a week-long intensive retreat. And then we measure their brains at the end of the, uh, that week. And we want to see that the changes just aren't in their is, mind, is, but is they're the in their brain. Is the measurement electromagnetic or is it MRI? What type of measurement? Yeah, so the quantitative EEGs for now, but we're moving to PET scans uh, in the near future here. And so, you know, we select, randomly select, say, for example, 50 people, and we measure their brains before we measure their brains after. We have people where uh, heart rate variability um, devices, so we could see when they're frustrated, we, we see when they're impatient, when we can see when they're resentful. And then if they, they have the tools to be able to transform that emotional state into a different state, and not just say that they can do it, but we could actually see the, the change in the rhythm of the heart uh, if they can practice that uh, in, 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 in the meditation and get really good at doing that with their eyes closed, we want them to get so good at that that they can do it with their eyes open. So then we, we draw blood and we're looking for thousands and thousands and thousands of metabolites that determine whether a body is in growth and repair or the body is in, in breakdown. And we've measured gene expression, we've measured um, telomeres, we've measured just about everything. So anyway, long story short, uh, we also measure real-time scans when a person is in meditation. And we use meditation as the model for, uh, for creation and true transformation. And so um, we measure brains in real time. And what we discovered uh, just in the last uh, few years is that there comes a moment where a person all of a sudden seems to connect to something very powerful and the amount of energy uh, that is created in the brain are, are sometimes 200 to 500 times outside of normal. The person's having an arousal, but the arousal is not pain. The arousal is not fear and the arousal is not aggression. The arousal tends to be ecstasy. The arousal tends to be this transformational moment where they feel connected to something very powerful and very big. And the brainwave patterns are uh, in such a state of gamma. Gamma brainwaves are super consciousness. And the brain is so coherent that the coherence is causing energy to build in the brain way outside of normal. And way, way, way outside of normal. And when you, you know, the person can't make their brain do that. Something is happening to them. And we've kind of demystified the formula on how to bring a person to the state and we can actually repeat it, we can induce it, uh, and we can predict it, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and so when you have 10 people in, in, a, in a room who's ha uh, uh, that were scanning their brain 
and say four out of those 10 are having these arousals and the report is something very uh, uh, transcendental, we draw blood from them and um, we listen to their subjective stories. And they're usually very, very profound, uh, very, very uh, um, mystical. So when we draw the blood from those people who have these transcendental uh, experiences with energy, not with matter or anything that's happening through their sensory systems, through their uh, sensory organs, but it's happening almost like the brain is transducing information into profound imagery. When we draw the blood on those people, we noticed that there was significant changes in their biology, that there was more wholeness. And there was um, some people that had looked like they came to a week long event, very sick. And at the end of the, at the end of that week, they looked like they got really well and caught the scientists attention because they never had seen such dramatic changes like that. So COVID happened and they closed all the labs and we said, Hey, why don't we uh, apply for a grant uh, for the national institutes of health? And let's look at some of this blood of these advanced meditators that had such profound changes in their biology. So what we did is we built the pseudovirus, a virus that's just like the SARS virus, uh, the exact same spike proteins on the outside, but instead we put a, uh, a nuclear material in there uh, that would create a red protein. If a cell absorbed the virus, it would turn red. And so, we took that pseudovirus and we put it in the plasma of advanced, these advanced meditators that had these transcendental experiences. And lo and behold, for some reason, there was a resistance uh, in the cell. There was an immunity for the virus to actually uh, enter the cell and it, and it caught our attention. And so then we took the electron microscopes and we looked at it even closer and the plasma of the advanced meditators seem to have um, these fuzzy little spikes outside the cell where when we looked at novice meditators, some were outside and some were in uh, inside the cell and the controls that we studied, of course, they were all infected. So we knew that there was some factor that was in the plasma of the advanced meditators. And so we've gone through a series of very, very sophisticated scientific experiments. And we found that um, that there is a resistance to the the the, we, uh, the SARS virus uh, with advanced meditators. And so we took the plasma of those people who've had these transcendental moments and we subject it then to uh, to cancer cells. And what we noticed was that there was a 75 70 to 75% reduction in the amount of energy in the cancer cells. Uh, these are sophisticated studies that show that the mitochondria just of cancer cells or the, the powerhouse of the cell just lose their power. Uh, we see that if the plasma is subjected to brain cells that have uh, the, the, the expression for Alzheimer's, that there's a down regulation in um, uh, uh, the, the gene for Alzheimer's. So, so what does that mean? Well, then we started looking at variants, to putting the variants in, in, in the presence of uh, the plasma advanced meditators, and we see a resistance to the variant. And so what's the significance of this? The importance is, is that, uh, uh, that there's a dosing effect that people who tend to go inward every day and self-regulate uh, tend to, according to our surveys, uh, uh, not only have uh, less COVID, 
But if they do get it, their symptoms only last for a very short amount of time. But the dosing effect says that people who meditate every day seem to have this resistance uh, to their environment. And so uh, there's so much evidence now that points to the fact that that we can self-regulate and we don't need anything outside of us uh, to, uh, to, uh, to change our inner state. Thank you. When you say like advanced meditation, you know, I like to meditate all the time. I meditate every day. And obviously I'm not in a position to evaluate what my, how my immune system has been affected by that other than sort of anecdotally. And I'm also bad at causality generally, you know, like I, if it was left to me, I wouldn't have noticed the relationship between eating a lot of food and putting on weight. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, don't, I just live real life sometimes in a way that's so spontaneous that I don't connect obvious causality. But I still, in spite of the meditation and quite a, a significant amount of work, experience, look, not significant suffering compared to where I'm from and what I've been through, you know, I'm not sort of saying relative to other people, but like relative to my own experience temporally and i but i still like you know approaching 19 years clean meditating 10 12 years you know there's still a lot in me joe there's still a lot you know and like even something as basic as being able to intervene in my own thinking being able to intervene when i feel anger or fear or sadness or desire that would be a very great tool for me is there anything that you can suggest even in this somewhat limited context and format that you think would be useful to me? Wow. Um, well, I hope there's something I could say that, that would help. Uh, but for, for a person who truly wants to make changes, uh, that, that, uh, that are more permanent, um, Let's let's just examine what our personality is made up of. Our personality is made up of how we think, how we act, and how we feel. So I believe that your personality creates your personal reality. And uh, in order to change your personal reality, your life, it means then that on some level we have to change because nothing changes in our life unless we change. So if people have, understand that 90% of the thoughts that they think every day are the same thoughts as the day before, it, that's, a, that's a fact. And the same thoughts always lead to the same choices. The same choices always lead to the same behaviors. The same behaviors create the same experiences. And the same experiences produce the very same feelings and emotions. And those same emotions influence our very same thoughts. And our biology, our neurocircuitry, our neurochemistry, our hormones, our gene expression stays the same because we're the same. But the repetition of firing and wiring the same circuits in our brain in the same way uh, causes us to uh, create a very finite set of circuitry that becomes our identity and our personality. And nerve cells that fire together wire together, which means you keep doing it, it gets easier for them to fire and they run more automatically. So it turns out 95% of who we are by our midlife is a set of memorized uh, 
behaviors, unconscious habits, hardwired thoughts and attitudes, uh, uh, conditioned emotions that are so familiar to us that it doesn't even feel like uh, uh, fear or it doesn't feel like sadness. It's just who we are. So it usually takes crisis or trauma or disease or diagnosis or your lowest point in your life where you're knocked to your knees. And for that moment, you actually have a view of yourself outside of yourself. You can see yourself uh, from a different state. The, the facade, the, 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 the whole illusion is over. And that's when a person really begins to think about what they've been thinking about. They begin to notice how they speak or how they act. And I think they begin to pay attention to those feelings uh, on, a, on a more uh, regular and conscious basis. And the word meditation, I looked this up because when I started my journey, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, scientifically minded. I, the word meditation, the symbol means to become familiar with. So, so then the first step to change, if you wanted to create a new life, you have to change. Uh, uh, it's to change your personal reality, you have to change your personality. And the first step is consciousness or becoming aware. So the moment you become conscious of your unconscious thoughts, the moment you become aware of your automatic reflexive habits and, and your emotional reactions, the moment you can become so conscious of those unconscious states of mind and body uh, that you don't go unconscious again, so familiar with those states. And how many times do we have to forget or go unconscious till we no longer forget or go unconscious and we stay conscious. That's, 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 sit, that's lighting a match in a dark place. And most people, when they do meditation, they, they actually think when those voices come up and when the chatter starts and those emotions start, they actually think that they're doing their meditation wrong. And I want them to know that they're actually doing it right because you're coming up against those thoughts that slip by your awareness unnoticed or unchecked by many people. Uh, you all of a sudden catch how you speak. And people say, if I really wanna be happy, let's think about this. I don't wanna, I don't wanna complain. I don't wanna blame. I don't wanna make excuses. I don't wanna feel sorry for myself. I'm gonna stop that. Now that's breaking a habit of being yourself. That's a, that takes a lot of energy and a lot of awareness. And, and, and our environment then, the circumstances, our environment are always available for us to think and feel equal to everything in our life, you know? So the environment for many people, as we said earlier, controls the way they think and feel. So when they respond to their coworker, when they respond to the news, when they respond to the, um, the, the traffic in their life, uh, that response causes them to return back to those unconscious programs. So, but sitting in a meditation and really sitting in the fire and, believing that there's something on the other side of that thought, uh, uh, believing that there's something on the other side of some behavior or some emotion uh, that feel, makes us feel a certain way, that's, that's stepping into the unknown. And, and it, takes, um, it takes us disconnecting from the environment. That's what meditation is about. Playing music or hearing nothing, or closing your eyes and not eating, not smelling, not tasting, not feeling with your body putting your body away and you're not letting it be the mind or the program. You're making it sit still. You're training the animal, right? And, and a person starts feeling emotional and they catch themselves starting to feel those emotions. Instead of letting that emotion drive certain thoughts or, or actions, that person settles the body down uh, in the meditation 
and brings it back into the present moment. And, and that's a victory. And you're training the body to no longer be the mind. You're saying, I'm the mind. Then it wants to get up and check its cell phone and social media. It wants to get up and have a cup of coffee. It wants to move about. It wants to do what it always does. It, that's the program. That's the habit. And you catch yourself in the meditation wanting to get up and go and quit or lay down. You, you, you execute a will that's greater than that unconscious program. And you settle the body back into the present moment. That's a victory too, because if the familiar past is the known and the predictable future is the known, there's only one place where the unknown exists, and that's that that generous sweet spot of the present moment. And we, you, you practice this enough time, like training an animal, <laughs> the body finally surrenders to a new mind, and there's a liberation of energy that takes place from the body, and you're actually taking that emotion, and it takes time, you know, if you've been at it for a while, and you you free the body a little bit more from the past. And the hardest part about change is not making the same choice as we did the day before. So meditation then means to become familiar with the old self. But then if we truly wanted to create a new personality, we would have to start thinking differently. So what thoughts do we want to fire and wire in our brain? And with intention and attention and presence, if you keep firing and wiring that circuit and be present with it, you begin to install the neurological hardware in your brain. Keep practicing it, and the hardware starts to become more like a software program. It starts to become more automatic, and that becomes the new subvocalization, the new voice in our head that says, you can, anything is possible. Research also says that you can change your brain just by thinking differently. So if a person sat down and said, how do I want to be in my life in these certain circumstances with these certain people in these certain conditions. If they close their eyes and they actually rehearse a different way of being and they mentally rehearse what they're going to do, they plan their actions. In time, if they do this properly, the brain is no longer looking like a record of the past, all of a sudden becomes like a map to the future. They're installing hardware in their brain to use when they open their eyes do it enough times and become familiar with it and fire and wire, it becomes more automatic and more natural. And the person begins to start to change their behavior. Then the person says, okay, I want to teach my body emotionally what my future could feel like before it happens. That means we don't wait for our success to feel abundant. We don't wait for our new relationship to feel love or our healing to feel gratitude. That's kind of the model of cause and effect, being waiting for the environment to change so we can feel better. But the person's saying, I want to actually teach my body emotionally what that future feels like, and I'm going to elevate my emotional state. It turns out if people can do this really well and they can sustain the state, and we've measured this, the heart starts to inform the brain that it's safe to create. And the brain moves into these elegant, beautiful states of coherence, and they're there is a resetting of the baseline in the primitive centers in the brain, like the amygdala, where the trauma exists. It resets the baseline for trauma in the brain. And all of a sudden, for some reason, the body tends to move out of the emotions of the past and the person starts to become familiar with a new emotion. And when they look back at their past from a different level of consciousness, from a different emotional state. Many people at, uh, report moments where 
they see all the trauma and all the betrayal and all the abuse as something that was so important for them to go through because it brought them to this, this moment. So then if you keep practicing this, we've seen dramatic changes in, in not only in a person's biology, but the side effect then, the cool stuff, is when it starts, you start seeing the, the outpicturing or the opportunities that begin to show up in your life. And, and many times a person, it may take them years to go through this process, but catching themselves with their eyes open and not defaulting back to the old personality is the work. And, and that, that takes an enormous amount of awareness and enormous amount of effort. And especially when we're living in a world that's changing so dramatically that, that, that we, we feel victims, uh, uh, victimized by those circumstances. So, so the default of falling back into the same personality uh, then causes us to feel the same emotions that are connected to that person. And if you say to you, well, Russell, why do you, are you unhappy today? Well, I'm happy because of this circumstance or this condition. Well, that means then the outer world once again is influencing how you feel and think. And every person, every object, everything that's known in your life is mapped neurologically in your brain. And everything that's known to you, you've experienced, you have an emotion associated with it. So now the moment we default, now it's no longer our personality creating our personal reality. Our personal reality is actually creating our personality and reaffirming it. And we're thinking equal to everything that we know. And of course, our life stays the same. So. The retreats are designed to have people retreat from their lives for seven days to come up against all of those thoughts, all of those unconscious behaviors, all of those emotions, and, and, and work on moving into new states of being. And truly, when you have this moment of transformation or change, I think what happens is uh, it's hard to go back. And the side effect of that, again, is just dramatic changes in people's health, in their life, uh, and in their biology, and we're measuring all of that. The, what is the um you know like the obviously you know because i'm referring to some of the particularly one book you've written the, the 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 power of placebo in even in what we must i suppose call conventional mainstream science is so steadfastly acknowledged that a placebo is a, a necessary component to any clinical trial to ensure that the results of a new pharmacological invention isn't just because of the body and mind's shared capacity to heal when that suggestion is offered strongly and my understanding and this is i think from sort of maslow or something i think it was huxley talking about maslow so the, the, like 20 percent of people highly susceptible to placebos if you tell them get better to take this that 20 percent of people will and 20 percent of people highly suggestible to hypnosis if you tell them this is reality <clears throat> and the, the, in this sort of somewhat anecdotal evidence that i encountered they offered that there's a sort of a, a similarly a 20 percent of people they're very resistant to placebos and very resistant to hypnosis and then that middle 60 percent is where you know on a social and political uh level propaganda exists to direct and nudge people into the required state so from a, I suppose a more um, medical perspective or biochemical perspective, how whatever lexicon you you deploy, 
what uh, how do you describe and understand uh, placebos and how do you direct and harness this obviously recorded and acknowledged effect well i it's it's been an interest of mine because i've always wondered how is it that you could give a person a sugar pill a saline injection or perform some false surgery or procedure or sham surgery and a certain percent of those people based on their suggestibility will accept believe and surrender to the thought that they're getting the actual substance or treatment and they begin to program their autonomic nervous system to make the exact pharmacy of chemicals equal to the substance that they think they're taking. Now, the first question is, is it the inert substance, the placebo that's doing the healing, or is the person healing by thought alone? Now, we've been conditioned and hypnotized into believing that we need something out there in our three-dimensional outer reality, our world, to change our internal state here. And so if a round white pill that has a line down the middle that you've taken many, many times to take away pain, as an example, you take the pill and with a certain amount of time and a certain amount of information that you're being programmed to believe, that pill makes your pain go away. And the moment you notice a change in your internal state, the moment you notice the the change in your pain levels, you remember what caused it. You pay attention to what caused it and you become more reliant on that for it the next time. So then if you keep doing this over and over again and you take the person doing this and they're conditioning themselves to rely on that outer substance to change their inner state. <laughs> well, the thought or the anticipation of taking that substance that is we, 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 we put in a pill that looks just like it, but it's starch or it's sugar, but it looks exactly the same. The anticipation of taking that pill, conditioning based on the past, expectation based on the future, as they expect to have the same effect, their body automatically, just like Pavlov's dog, begins to make the very chemicals it's anticipating, just like when you start to salivate when you're hungry and you see food. It's an autonomic or automatic response. So then let's take it to the next level. Uh, you have an enthusiastic doctor. Uh, you name a substance uh, very difficult for a person to pronounce. Uh, you show them all the pharmacological effects that this particular substance could do and you give them a placebo. And when they get that pill, that pill is a symbol. It represents a new possibility in the quantum field. And they begin to actually imagine, they start to, they start to select a new potential in their future where they could actually exist in a new reality, in a new body. And they, they, they believe it, they surrender to it. And they hold that image in their mind and they're selecting that potential. The, 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 the pill represents a new possibility. Then the person that's optimistic, that's enthusiastic, that's grateful that they're actually getting this substance begins to change their emotional state. And now placebo studies many times, Russell, are not done for three days. They're done for six to eight weeks. 
So the person then who's in the depression study, who's given the placebo, and they're taking that antidepressant placebo every day, and they're taking that thought of it working and combining it with the feeling. Now the thought and the feeling, the image of how they could be, the brand and the emotion, the stimulus and response begins to condition the body emotionally into a new state of being. And so then the person in the study for depression, when you see their pre and post brain scans uh, and you see the dramatic changes in their brain, they're making their own pharmacy of antidepressants. The studies on pain, the person is making their own morphine. They've put the, the, the blockers on the receptors to show that the person's making their own pharmacy of pain relievers. You take people with Parkinson's disease and they begin to make 200 times the amount of dopamine by thought alone. Now, here's the question. If it took six to eight weeks of conditioning for this person to actually change their state of being, the first question is, do you, new, do you need the exogenous substance or can you change your state of being just by learning a formula of brain and heart coherence and get so good at it that you don't need the placebo, that the same mechanisms that you understand with the placebo, that you could change your state of being every single day. And so then six to eight weeks means that it may take you six to eight weeks to change your depression and change your state of being. And the studies also show that the people who made 200 times the amount of dopamine and had no tremors, no shuffling gait, no problems, the spastic paralysis associated with Parkinson's disease, when they returned back to their normal lives, the majority of those people had all of their symptoms returned because when they saw the same people and they went to the same places and they did the exact same things, their environment was changing their state of being and they returned back to the old self again. So then staying conscious and staying aware to be greater than your environment, to be greater than the emotions and habituations of the body and to not live in the predictable future and the familiar past and be in the present moment and be out of time. That's the work, right? So. So we've, we've actually dissected this and we've actually shown that the person can change their state of being without using any placebo and they can produce the same exact effects. And so the two things that are required that we've learned over the years is that we have to teach people how to regulate and change their brain waves so they can get beyond their analytical mind that says, oh, that's BS or I'm never gonna change. Uh, it's too hard. How long is this going to take? You know, the, the critic in our mind that, and that when when aroused by the hormones of stress becomes over focused and overly analytical, that a person has to learn how to get out of those brainwaves and settle down into an altered brainwave state that tends to be more creative and not just specific brainwaves that are measurable, but very organized and coherent brainwaves. There's got to be order in the brain and what those synchronizations that take place in the brain, the sinking in the brain causes the brain to link together and the person starts feeling more whole. If they can combine that with brain coherence, with heart coherence, and all of a sudden we see this beautiful dance on our real-time scans of people who actually are in that state of creation, their heart is actually telling their brain it's time to create, it's the creative center. And there's this beautiful dance that goes on between those two centers uh, and the person now is actually feeling like they no longer want the things that they thought they wanted 
because it feels like they already have them. They, the wholeness causes them to move out of lack and separation. So we've, we've kind of uncovered this kind of formula of brain and heart coherence that uh, once a person's able to regulate and execute their autonomic nervous system, remember stress is autonomic dysregulation, the autonomic nervous system moves out of order. But when we start to see these elegant patterns of order that take place uh, with brain and heart coherence, the autonomic nervous system uh, tends to move into regulation, uh, uh, move into more order. And it's what begins to cause uh, the person uh, 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 to move out of those survival states. So we don't need the sugar pill or the saline injection. And there are studies on, on um, placebos. Some of them work up to 90%. So there's a range from 10 to uh, over 90%, depending on what the condition is and, and, and uh, uh, the, the, the circumstances. So it's a fascinating concept. And uh, my interest is to teach people how to, to understand the, the process and use it to their advantage. Do you think that the institutional interests mean that our environments are continually biased towards generating states of both desire and fear, suspending us in those inner states as a result of the same stimuli being continually offered? Well, I do. I do. I think that uh, people are becoming commodities now and information really controls uh, people's behaviors and uh, and their beliefs. And gosh, and we accept, believe and surrender to information that's equal to our emotional state. So if you're in lack and you're insecure, then you're gonna look for something out there and some commercial, some, some, some program to cause you to think it's gonna go away. Something's gonna take it away. And, and whether it's a drug or a pill or whether it's a product or whatever, I think there's this kind of entanglement that the, that the way you control people's choices is you control their emotions. And I think that, that the survival emotions tend to divide culture, uh, tend to cause a separation of our innate quality to want to connect. The human beings by nature, are, are, they want to connect. They, they, want, to, they want to become uh, more of a community. And, and so when you introduce survival and stress hormones, uh, it, it, it fractures a, a community. And at the same time, the person is feeling so much fear, feeling so much insecure, feeling so much guilt uh, that, that they, it, it, they haven't had the opportunity or, or the understanding that they could actually control that, that there's something on the other side of it. So what they do is they immediately look for something outside of them. And it's only gonna be based on what they're programmed into knowing what is available. And people do the best with what they think is available. And so if you wanna create a tremendous imbalance and break a system, just polarize it far enough so it becomes so polarized and so imbalanced that you that you you have chaos. And, and so I think information has become uh, uh, a really, really big, uh, uh, you know, control mechanism and, and, and people are at the effect of that. And, and uh, you put a person in front of a screen and without them knowing it, their brain waves change. They're, they go into a trance, they're more suggestible. And, and so then you create a little fear and the person feels the fear, they pay attention to what's being told to them and they believe it because it, the information is equal to their emotional state. And so you wanna sell a product 
you know, create the illusion of a dream and then have the person associate with somebody in the scene and realize that, wow, that person looks better than me. They look older, but they look healthy and I'm not that. And my immune system needs this. And, and I think, I think you can, you know, that you can capitalize a great deal in that way. Yes. So you feel like it's a kind of mass hypnosis almost. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we're hypnotized into believing that we need something outside of us to change our internal state. I, I just and and listen, this is so cool, Russell, because I sit with really smart academic people. And uh, when I watch them, when I when they tell me I ran the experiment five times in a row and I have this big smile on my face because I know they're running that experiment five times in a row because they're changing their belief right in that moment. They cannot believe what they're seeing. And I say to them, you got into science for one reason, to discover. That's what science is, is you want to discover something new. And here they are discovering the, the very protein in the body that causes the body to become resistant to a very serious virus. Take that protein and stick it in the controls of the infected people and we see all of the infection go away in the controls when we put that protein in there. That there's a resource within us that is so incredibly unlimited. And so when I see a scientist that says, uh, people that are beginning meditators that come to a week-long event and they go all in, 100%, all day, every day, and we, we measure their biological changes at the end of seven days. And, I, and there's dramatic changes in those metabolites to show that the system, the organism is changing. And I say to the scientist, what does this mean? And he says, this suggests that there are very, very significant changes going on in the environment. And I say to him, well, there's 1,500 people and we're in a ballroom. There's not a whole lot of stimulation in a ballroom. They all look the same to me in just about every hotel we're in. The, the suggestion is that it's not the outer environment that's actually changing. It's the inner environment that's, that's actually changing. The person's really learning how to actually make those changes by themselves. So the, the suggestion that there's strong environmental changes that actually out, out prove a drug study. A drug study is about 25% cause and effect. And when we see that our, our measurements are 75% causality, in other words, there's a very strong influence of what's happening here. And it's, it's not by chance alone. You teach people that information and people have that information that, that they can participate in their healing, that they can participate in life in some way. That is it possible that collective networks of observers, not the, the most amount of people, but a collective network of observers that, that actually are living in a greater level of consciousness, does it, can it determine random events or determine reality? Can random events become less random and more intentional? And we've done those experiments and every single time we've done the experiment by the end of a week long event, that if we get people in a coherent state and the same uh, 
uh, emotional level, the same energy. Can we cause random events to become more intentional? And, and the machinery <laughs> suggests that, that, that that's exactly, actually the truth. So I'm very optimistic uh, for what you're doing. I'm very optimistic with what a lot of people are doing right now to awaken people to possibilities because there, there's community is the answer. And we have to be able to resolve those problems from a greater level of consciousness than the consciousness that has created them. And there's research on artificial intelligence right now that says, get a group of people together and have them guess an outcome. <laughs> Just guess an outcome. They may even not know anything about the sports team. They may know nothing about whatever they're guessing about. And somehow they fall within a very close range of correctness. That's an important thing for people to understand that that if we organize as a community and collectively uh, live from a greater level of consciousness, um, that we, we, we actually can make an effect uh, on, on the world that's uh, currently changing. Beautiful, Joe. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. I, I believe what you're saying. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think, you know, for me personally, I can say so many more things uh, with certainty now. I mean, I have colleagues and, and uh, 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 physicians and friends that, that, say to me, are you saying that advanced meditators blood are, uh, is, is resistant to COVID? And I say, oh gosh, no, I'm, I'm actually not saying that. The data is actually saying that. It's not me that's saying that, the data is saying it. And I love, love, love that our community of people is so diverse. We have eight-year-old kids that come with their parents that do every meditation that are in on every lecture or walking meditations, you know, laying down meditations, seated meditations. We have people in their 90s. We have elders that come. Uh, we have every race, every, so many cultures. Our events usually have at least 60 to 70 uh, different countries represented there. I love when people come together and uh, they start activating their pro-social networks in their brain because they're wanting, they're feeling, uh, they're fr feeling free enough to to believe in a, in a new future and a new reality. So, so when I I am actually so hopeful um, uh, about what we're discovering uh, that we're we're publishing papers now uh, that publishing papers in you know prestigious journals to say, look, well, this is what we discovered. What do you want to, what do you want, what do you want to do with this? Uh, and how can we use it uh, in, in the best possible way? So the right information then uh, uh, that's given to people, and this is what we discovered. Every time you learn something new, you make new connections in your brain. That's what learning is. Learning is forging synaptic connections. One hour of study, according to the Nobel Prize uh, laureate, one hour of constant study, focused concentration on one topic, one concept, one idea, doubles the number of connections in your brain. That's what learning is. If you don't repeat it, if you don't review it, if you don't keep thinking about it, you don't fire and wire those circuits, the circuits prune apart within hours or days, you forget, you don't remember. So if learning is making synaptic connections, then remembering is maintaining them. Okay, so get a collective group of people of 1,500 people or 2,000 people, all wanting uh, to overcome some aspect of themselves. Give them the formula. 
use science as the language. The moment you use tradition or religion or culture or whatever, you're going to divide an audience. Science creates community. Make it simple enough to combine all those different sciences that we discussed earlier. Have the person understand it in a simple and very uh, pragmatic way, and then have them turn to somebody and teach it back to them. <laughs> now they have to, if they can't explain what they're learning, it's not wired in their brain. But if they can explain it and between the two of them build a model of understanding, they are installing neurological hardware because they're causing their brain to fire in new sequences, new patterns and new combinations. And whenever you make your brain work differently, you're changing your mind. Mind is your brain in action. So you're reminding yourself of that information. You're causing your brain to install circuitry. Now, the more you understand what you're doing and the more you understand why you're doing it, the how becomes instrumental. And this is where the frontal lobe kind of jumps in, the prefrontal cortex. It says, I have meaning. I assign meaning to what I'm doing. And if I assign meaning to what I'm doing, if I work out as an example, if I have meaning, I'll, I'll, I'll have more benefits. So get your conscious mind involved in understanding the meaning of what you're doing. Leave nothing up to conjecture, nothing up to superstition, nothing up to dogma. Uh, but the person actually can actually explain it. It's wired in their brain. Set up the conditions in their environment and give them the right instruction and give them numerous opportunities to practice it, numerous opportunities to connect. Sooner or later, they're going to have an experience. Now, experience then enriches the circuits in the brain. That's what experience does. But the end product of an experience is an emotion. And the moment the person starts to feel elevated, the moment the person starts to feel connected, the moment the person starts to feel love again. Now they're teaching their body chemically to understand what their mind is intellectually understood. So knowledge is for the mind and experiences for the body. And in that moment, the person is embodying the truth of that information and their mind and body are beginning to work together. And they're literally changing their genetic future, their genetic destiny, because new information is new emotions. And so uh, the body has, is an has an alignment. The philosophy, the theory is becoming truth for the person. It's becoming very somatic. If you've done it once, you should be able to do it again. And if you can repeat any experience over and over again, <laughs> you begin to neurochemically condition your mind and body to begin to work as one. Uh, and yet when you've done it so many times that your body now knows how to do it better than your conscious mind, it's innate in you. So the experience then is the embodiment of truth, the repetition of the experience, neurologically firing and wiring and emotionally conditioning causes, causes the person to become that knowledge. It, become, it causes them to begin to master uh, that information. It, it moves them into a new state of being. So I think that the concept that people are beginning to recognize is, is to go from that philosopher uh, to, the, to the initiate, to the master, from mind to body to soul, from, from knowledge to experience to wisdom, from thinking to doing to being, to learning it with your head, applying it with your hands, and then knowing it by heart. And so um, for, for me, uh, the experiment called life, right? Um, you ask our community why, why they do their meditation uh, or, or why they won't miss a day of doing their meditation. It's not like, oh God, I have to go meditate. 
the synchronicities and the, and the coincidences and the magic that's happening in their lives by them changing their state of being, they don't want the magic to end. Uh, they don't. They don't want to see the world through the lens of the past from their old self. They want to. They want to become somebody else. And it's the overcoming. I think this is the overcoming. The overcoming of the overcoming that allows us to become somebody else. Uh, and so people say, "Well, I want this or I want that in their, their their lives." And what we've discovered, just based on the surveys we've done, is what people really want is is happiness. What they want is wholeness. Uh, when you're whole, you no longer want you, you you no longer are in lack. So so you can't say that you're too old any longer to me to do this work. We have elders in this work that really have amazing amazing um, uh, uh, results. We, we you can't say you're too sick. Uh, to do this work. We've seen people with stage four cancer. We've seen blind people see, deaf people hear, people with Parkinson's disease go into remission, people with all kinds of rare genetic disorders uh, disappear. I mean, we've seen uh, stroke patients that were paralyzed lift their arms. I mean, we've seen just all kinds of things when people start to to uh, change their state of being. So if you ask Joe Dispenza, <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 you know, two years ago, if I thought I would be seeing what I'd be seeing today, I'd probably say, yeah, hopefully maybe once or twice. But uh, there's a there's a kind of a collective movement of people really not relying on uh, anything any longer. No government, no, no, no uh, health care plan, no, no religion. They're, they're actually taking their power back and 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 becoming more creators of their lives, which is kind of cool. And. And you, you can't even say uh, that you had a turbulent past any longer because we've seen people with really brutal pasts um, that were really sick and, and mentally uh, uh, struggling as well have a complete reversal uh, uh, in their health and in the way they perceive their lives. So, so I think it's the act of overcoming, uh, and I think it's the overcoming process that allows us to become somebody else. And it isn't about the wealth, or it isn't about the health, or it isn't uh, about the new relationship. I think it's really who we become. And so then if you show up in the world and you're not reacting like everybody else, and you've learned how to restrain or at least overcome some of those survival emotions, and be able to convert right right on the spot when it's the hardest. That's when it matters the most. Uh, you show up in your life, and you're you're a troubadour, which you are for truth, and for justice, and 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 for the right information. Um, it allows other people uh, when you actually stand up and and demonstrate what that looks like for others. And and there's enough neuroscience to show that our brains synchronize to uh, to whatever uh, whatever tribe we're in. So. So you, get, you give people permission then to to um, to do the same, and I and, and I think uh, that's what that's what's going to make help us uh, get to get to a new place. Joe, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Joe Dispenza. That's a, an amazing conversation. I feel like we'll meet each other soon. I hope so. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks for that conversation, Joe. That was really that's really lovely. I really enjoyed that, and I was more and more engaged as it went on from the relaying of information to a kind of as you say feeling and embodiment of it and i was thinking about the application of some of those ideas and 
where I'm at is the point of sort of observation. I am like witnessing my like I witness pivotal moments. I witness what you know would be called triggering and stuff like that. I guess these days I sort of notice like oh look I'm about to have this thing happen. I'm about to react. Stay present, observe it. You know, obviously having the sort of template of chemical dependency is helpful, and then sort of behavioural addictions that thank God have altered. I'm sort of somewhat able to watch more subtle behavioural networks as they fire. I like what you said about synchronicity and the implication that the sort of ulterior and secondary realities are sort of ever present and observe, become observable as we align with different levels or frequencies, however you want to see it, of reality in inverted commas. And yeah, I feel like I felt that in this conversation, man. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And, and it's not that it's not that we're, we react. I think we all react. The question is, how long? <laughs> mm. How long do we react? And, and, and being able to uh, what we found when we studied brain and heart coherence is the best way we can describe it is relaxed and awake. That is the really pivotal point in human beings where they're super resourceful, and that they can do the uncommon. There's just it's relaxed and awake instead of a stressed uh, yeah. uh, and survival and, and being unconscious. So, uh, you know, my gosh, we, we every day if we we uh, we say, hey, we got one lifetime today, one day to make a difference, one day to live. How would I live uh, and show others how to live? I think I think people are seeing past the the facade, you know, the illusion. I think more and more people are doing that. And I used to think that you and I were the minority. Uh, just, but, but I think there's a program that, uh, that, that makes it seem that way. But I think if you ask anybody in the world right now, and I talk to enough people, whatever your belief is, many people say something just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that, at what point, you know, do we have to get so uncomfortable, uh, that, that, uh, um, we unify as a community. And, and, uh, I think that's, that's the key. So, so. Uh, I agree. I agree that that we're all faced with great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. And the only way out uh, is we've we've actually seen this in the brain. Like when a person is analyzing their life within some emotion, and, the, and if that emotion is derived from the hormones of stress, one hundred percent of the time they'll make their brain worse. They're they're thinking in the past. They're thinking in the box. And 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 teaching people how to, 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 to regulate, uh, when it's the hardest, you know, when it's the most difficult, mm. I think mm. also creates the greatest contrast, which is they tend to love themselves a whole lot more for, uh, for making, you know, a better choice. And, and I think that's what unifies community. So, uh, thank you for, you know, all the work that you do as well. Appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for your work. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Joe Dispenza and please go and meditate now. Now you know what you can do to your consciousness through meditation. You perhaps go directly to Above the Noise and meditate immediately. You've got it. You've already paid for it. Get it down, yeah. I'm going on tour. You can come see me all over the south of England. Hammersmith. Still some tickets left. Go get them, baby. Russellbrand.com. Also sign up to my mailing list to know exactly what I'm up to, when I'm up to it, and keep watching my YouTube channel for all my gear. Django, you got anything to add? No. Nope. Don't know where I've gone with this sort of behavior. No, now. we're in the new year now. Happy New Year, Jen. Thanks. So now, uh, that's the end. That's the end. <laughs> and they should listen to. Oh, right. Hold on. Let's see what Jenny's come up with this week. 
because I've got a lot of power, <laughs> powers of placebo outro. If you enjoyed this conversation, why don't you listen to Bruce Lipton? Makes sense. I mentioned him. And now also Blind Boy. Why, Jen? Talks about epigenetics. You did talk about epigenetics. How did you remember that? Just, I remember these things. No, you don't. Well, how would I have remembered? You can't have remembered. Yeah. Did you remember? I remember. <laughs> how was, did you remember? Because I was there and I edited it. <laughs> how did you remember? It was a big bit, wasn't it? Was it? I felt like, and they talked about the famine, and maybe that's why, and how we're all traumatized by the famine. The famine. My Irish people are so like, make sure you eat food. Make sure you eat. <laughs> never know when the British will starve us. Yeah. All right. All right. So, yeah, no, these are good suggestions. Have a listen to those now. Why not? They're there. They're free. Keep listening to the YouTube channel for new videos, and thank you so much for listening to Under the Skin.